You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. You know, I'm going to drop some truth bombs today that are going to make some people uncomfortable. And if you're wondering why I'm doing this, it's because the hypocrisy that was exhibited over the past week is just so apparent that it needs to be pointed out. You know, I have been called a lot of things over the years, mostly by unions and the left. However, regardless of the name calling, I have always tried to stay philosophically and ideologically consistent. And if you understand my basic philosophy, you'll understand why this past week was just so damn funny to watch as it unfolded. And here's my basic philosophy. I am opposed to almost all forms of compulsion, especially when it comes to government or state compulsion into economics. And Perhaps the best label, if you want a label, is that I'm a classical liberal. In other words, I am pro-free market. If, for example, you start a sentence with, quote, there should be a law, you've probably lost me before you can even finish the sentence. So when I saw people who are normally clamoring for government intervention, suddenly spitting mad at having, having the government actually intervene, while at the same time, people who would normally be opposed to government intervention, lobbying for that intervention, I find it highly amusing and not the least bit hypocritical. And that was last week in a nutshell. So let's talk about what happened. Last Friday, if you watched the news, President Biden signed a law that was passed by both chambers of Congress on Wednesday and Thursday, respectively, imposing union contracts on four railroad unions and their members, despite the fact that a majority of those workers had rejected the contracts. In other words, politicians in Washington, D.C., within the federal government, at the behest of businesses and trade associations, and even unions, according to the president, imposed working conditions on workers who had rejected those contracts. Now, if you're only slightly following this story and just watching the headlines, let me share just a bit of background before I get into the hypocrisy and chicanery, if you will, of everyone involved in this process, from the railroad barons, which is what Robert Reich calls them, like Warren Buffett, and who, by the way, owns BNSF, one of the railroads, and the politicians on both sides of the aisle, as well as the unions. So the backstory is there are 12 rail unions with 13 different contracts involving anywhere from 115 to 125,000 workers in the rail industry that have been trying to negotiate contracts since 2020. Now, under the Railway Labor Act, which also covers the airline industry, by the way, due to the likely widespread economic impact that a strike or a lockout would cause, Congress back in 1926 decided that a party cannot engage in what's called self-help, which is a strike or a lockout, unless some very cumbersome hurdles and timelines have been met. 
So, namely, the parties must go through mediation through the National Mediation Board, which is a federal agency. There are specific 30-day cooling off periods. Then if he chooses to and the parties still have not gotten a contract or agreement, the President of the United States can appoint what is called a Presidential Emergency Board, or PEB. Then, when the PEB issues its recommendations, the uh, there can be additional cooling off periods while the parties negotiate. Um, maybe once all those hurdles have been met, if the party still can't come to agreement, then maybe, just maybe, they can engage in self-help, which is a strike or a lockout, unless, unless Congress intervenes. And that's what happened last week. So in this instant case, in June, after the railroads and the unions spent over two years in negotiations, President Biden formed his Presidential Emergency Board, or PEB. The PEB took two months to provide their recommendations to the president, and the railroads and the unions went to Washington, like Mr. Smith, and they sat down with Labor Secretary Marty Walsh, and they tentatively agreed to contracts that were pretty much mirrored to what the PEB had recommendations had recommended. So mind you, these are pretty rich contracts. 24% wage bumps over the life of the contract, including retroactivity, low cost health insurance, etc. And you may recall that in mid-September, which was conveniently timed before the midterm elections, the Biden administration went out and they proclaimed that they saved the nation from a potentially devastating strike. Hurrah! However, what the rail workers did not get is paid sick days. And apparently, due to the way the railroads run their schedules and their loads these days, the sick days was a big deal. And taking off, if it's tied to attendance, if you if you call in sick, once it's tied to attendance, if which happens, by the way, in most companies, if it's not managed correctly, it can lead to disciplinary action, up to and including termination, apparently. Now, I'm going to state this, and you might disagree. If you do, feel free to leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. But I think that a lot of the rhetoric around these sick days is somewhat inflated. And that usually happens during labor disputes, and somewhere the truth is probably in between. Sick days is, yes, a big deal, but it may not be as big a deal as the unions are making it out to be. In any case, to get to where things stood at the beginning of last week, nine of the 13 unions, bargaining units, had ratified their contracts with the railroads. Four of the units did not. So this set the stage for a strike to take place if it were to happen, at 12.01 a.m. on December 9th, with one or possibly all four or any combination therein going out on strike at 12.01 a.m. December 9th. Now, if even one of the four walked off the job, and this is where it gets key, all 12 of the unions had vowed to honor one another's picket lines, which would have effectively meant shutting down the freight rail system or rail freight system throughout the United States. And that would have had, quote, devastating effects, $2 billion a day, according to Forbes. That would have probably idled manufacturing plants. Farmers who needed their grain for their livestock perhaps wouldn't have gotten it. And in fact, according to Slate.com, it would have stopped 2.4 million pounds of biosolids which is dehydrated and treated version of what is 
called human waste or poop from being shipped out of New York City every day. So had the rail unions gone out on strike, it would have been a poopy mess. So on Monday evening, as opposed to letting the railroads shut down on December 9th, Joe Biden called on Congress to pass legislation to stop a strike and impose contracts on the four unions and their members who had rejected the contracts. And this part is sort of key. In his letter to Congress, Biden asked them not to alter the contracts, to impose them as is. And, quote, some in Congress want to modify the deal to either improve it for labor or for management. However well-intentioned, any changes would risk delay and a debilitating shutdown. The agreement was reached in good faith by both sides, end quote. If the unions were to strike, according to Biden's letter, as many as 765,000 Americans, many of them union workers themselves, could be put out of work within the first two weeks alone. So that call for Congress to intercede and impose a contract on the union members who voted it down not only pissed off the union members, it pissed off a lot of people on the left. And so by Tuesday morning last week, Biden was being called a union buster and a scab, and people said he'd broken his promise to be the most pro-union president ever. And this is all coming from the left and the unions. And then the politicians in Congress took over. Now, a lot of people in the House and the Senate started saying, fine, we'll impose the contracts, but we're going to add sick days. However, this is where the shenanigans or the chicanery of both chambers comes in. Now, and this is kind of important to remember, when drafting legislation, the Democrats still control both chambers of com uh, Congress. And yes, while the filibuster still exists in the Senate, the drafting of the legislation, the wording of it is still done by Democrats. So in both chambers, again, controlled by Democrats, there were two ways to impose the contracts. And by the way, they didn't have to impose it. They could have ordered them back to the bargaining table for another 30 days and etc. But there are two ways to impose the contracts. One version of the bill was to do Biden's bidding and impose the contracts as is. The other version was to put a bill in that included the sick leave. So in both chambers, if they really wanted the rail workers to have sick leave, they could have just written a single bill to impose the contracts with sick leave. But they didn't, at least in one of the chambers. So in the House... They passed a measure that it included imposing the contracts with sick leave. In the Senate, however, which, as I mentioned, still has the filibuster, the bill to impose the contracts without sick leave was introduced without it. In other words, the bill was introduced without the inclusion of the sick leave. And then Bernie Sanders introduced a separate amendment, which included the sick leave. So, again, it could have been a single measure. However, it wasn't. So when Sanders' amendment failed, which included sick leave, the Senate then went on to overwhelmingly impose the contracts that were opposed by the rail workers, as is. The other thing Congress, as I mentioned, could have done is just ordered them back to the bargaining table, but President Biden, in his letter, did not want that to happen. He wanted no further delay. So here's where some of this, this chicanery came in in the Senate. And this is told by WSWS.org, which stands for World Socialist Website. The most significant element of the voting in the Senate was the expedited procedure. 
worked out in negotiations involving both parties and the White House, which required the unanimous consent of all 100 senators. If either Bernie Sanders, the progressive Elizabeth Warren, or anyone else had objected to this, the vote would have been delayed. In other words, Sanders' support was uh, decisive under the conditions in which the outcome of voting was known in advance. Again, this is WSWS. Not only that, he was a principal architect of the parliamentary maneuvering through which it passed. Sanders and the Democrats are cynically using the Republican opposition to sick days to posture as friends of the workers after they voted to impose the contract by an even wider margin than the Republicans, many of whom voted against it for factional reasons. Over at the New York Times, WSWS noted, Benjamin... Applebaum noted the hypocrisy, writing, quote, in a statement that perfectly captured the yawning gap between Democratic Party rhetoric and behavior, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi denounced the railroad companies as rapacious uh, profiteers who have been selling out to Wall Street to boost their bottom lines, making obscene profits while demanding more and more from railroad workers. Then, just one sentence later, she announced that House Democrats would stand with the profiteers, end quote. So, an act of Congress is signed into law by President Biden, just imposed terms and conditions of employment on tens of thousands of of workers and made striking, which is normally viewed as a fundamental right, into a federal crime, if they were to do that. And the amazing thing is, the very people who are condemning the actions President Biden and Congress took and banning the rail strike are the same ones who are pushing the PRO Act, a.k.a. the Protecting the Right to Organizing Act, which, guess what it does? It puts government-imposed arbitration into the negotiating process for the first contracts and takes away the right of anyone to oppose whatever's imposed. While at the same time business leaders and trade associations who are stating, on the one hand, they're for the free market, On the other hand, they're applauding this government intervention into the railroad industry. Do you see the hypocrisy here? So if you're a supporter of the PRO Act, which is calling for the imposition of contracts on businesses, unions, and most importantly, workers, you cannot be upset at the very thing that just happened to these railroad workers. And you know what else? If the PRO Act were ever to pass, and once a PRO Act imposed contract is foisted on businesses and workers, if the workers don't like it, what are they going to do? Strike? You see, once government-mandated arbitrators force a contract onto businesses and their workers, just like the rail workers, they're not going to be able to strike. And, you know, this... This is what's even more fascinating. There's this guy, Ben Burgess, who's a socialist adjunct philosophy professor at Morehouse College, and he's hardcore socialist. He wrote, the right to go on strike is a foundational right for workers in a free society. If the companies don't want the rail workers to exercise that right, they should offer them a better deal. Instead, our, quote, pro-labor president, echoing an argument previously made by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, says that the risk of an economic disruption is too great to respect the workers' the workers' democratic decision. That is obscene, according to Ben Burgess. 
Of course, Burgess is one of those so, uh, socialist academicians that believes that socialism just hasn't been done the right way yet. But for you business leaders who support Congress stepping in and forcing a contract on workers just so a rail strike wouldn't hurt your supply chain or your bottom line, how can you justifiably oppose the PRO Act forcing a contract on you? Do you see the hypocrisy? The utter abandonment of principles to political and economic expediency. I don't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Democratic Socialist, you cannot support an independent labor movement while demanding the government inject itself into the bargaining process and be an arbiter of what is good or bad. And for business leaders, you cannot claim to support a free market while applauding the government intervening at the bargaining table when it serves your purpose. Now, some of you may be asking, am I suggesting that rail, railroad workers should have been allowed to go out on strike and collapse the economy? If you're asking that, I would ask you, do you believe in compelling people to work against their will? Frankly, had they been allowed to strike, the railroad barons like Buffett, who owns BNSF, just wanted to get some alliteration in there, they may have relented on the issue and granted sick days. It could have been a short strike. They could have reopened the contracts that Biden had brokered and done some sort of deal across the industry. We will never know that, will we? And notwithstanding the fact that having the, the federal government inject itself into the middle of the process contaminates the next round of negotiations for both sides, it's hard for those who are decrying the government's actions to reconcile that they want the government involved in all negotiations across the economy. And that is what is so hypocritical. And by the way, if you think my sentiments are new or novel, they're not. I'm giving you the fundamental idea of unionism that existed more than 100 years ago. And it's based on voluntarism, not compulsion. The simplistic way to say this is if you invite the government and its sword to your table, once it's involved, it can cut both ways. Or as Samuel Gompers, a much more eloquent speaker, stated back in 1923, 100 years ago almost, the continuing clamor for extension of state regulatory powers under the guise of reform and deliverance of evil can but lead into greater confusion and more hopeless entanglements. Or as he wrote in 1915, the regulation of industrial relations is not a policy to be entered upon lightly. Establishment of regulation for one type of relation necessitates regulating of another and then another until finally all industrial life grows rigid with regulations. End quote. You see, Samuel Gompers, the founder of the American Federation of Labor, who died in 1924, two years before the Railway Labor Act and 11 years before the National Labor Relations Act were enacted, foresaw the dangers of government injecting itself into labor relations. And he's been proven right time and time again. Government will be your friend on some days and your enemy on others. So for those of you who are still demanding passage of the PRO Act, you have been warned over a hundred years ago. Be careful what you wish for because you might just get it and it might not be what you expect. And that is what happened to the railway workers last week. In any case, 
I wanted to drop those truth bombs on you because, quite frankly, the hypocrisy last week was just too widespread. And if you disagree, feel free to leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode or reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. That wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. Thanks for listening. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.